We are looking at Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we've made it to chapter 7 now. And tonight we're going to read one of the most quoted uh, passages uh, in, the, in the Bible, even by those outside the church. So let's look at uh, Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how do you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the log of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you were good and kind to us. We thank you that you've given us breath to see another day. We thank you that you have given us a break on this calendar month. We thank you that you have given us your word and that you promised to speak to us when we open it. And so we ask that you would help us to see Jesus, that you would help us by your spirit, that he would dig out for us ears to hear and eyes to see and that you would change us. We pray this in his name. Amen. So, so much we've seen of the Sermon on the Mount is, is counterintuitive. Uh, Jesus says things, he opens off right, right out of the gate by saying things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. He says things like, Everyone who is angry with his brother, everyone who is angry with his sister, will be liable to judgment because Jesus likens anger in our heart to murder. How counterintuitive is that? Everyone who looks at a woman or a man with lustful intent is already guilty of committing adultery with them. How is it that those who have nothing are blessed and the thoughts that do not turn into actions are damnable? Uh, so much of what Jesus says is counterintuitive in the Sermon on the Mount, and yet what he's showing us is that the way of the kingdom is altogether different from the ways of our own kingdoms, the ways of other kingdoms that we want. The way of King Jesus' kingdom is altogether different. We have a king who is unlike any other king, and what makes him beautiful is he doesn't just come to rule, he doesn't just come to reign, he came to lay down his life as a ransom for many. He came to take upon himself the sins of the world that you and I, those who are poor in spirit, might be blessed. You and I who get angry in our hearts might be forgiven. And like I said, right before we read the passage, we've actually come tonight to one of the most quoted passages in all of Scripture. Judge not. And this is the sort of quote that comes out all the time on message boards and on social media. It's the sort of thing that you hear, uh, especially when you've got somebody who is sort of a truth warrior, right? Doesn't know tone very well and attacks somebody who might actually be living or thinking something that is quite contrary to scripture. And maybe you've seen this played out personally. Maybe you have been part of this, but you know what happens. Somebody comes and tells somebody, sets them straight, right? Here's how things are. Who you are, what you're doing is wrong. Jesus says so. 
And as, as, as if this were a perfect softball sort of lob, you know, it's judge not, right? Just knock it out of the park because that's what Jesus says. And now we have a stalemate. Well, we both have Jesus on our side, don't we? Um, this is one of those passages that often the people who have it said to them and the people that quote it, there's usually something where Jesus could correct everyone in this sort of scenario. What do we do with a passage like this? Because Jesus does say, judge not, and so we should not judge, whatever that means. What does it mean? Jesus says in verse 2, you will receive the same judgment that you dole out. With the same measure that you give it, you will receive it. And then he seems to triple down on this in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, your sister's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? As you know, uh, we have three children, six and a half, four and a half, three months, or three and a half sleeps a whole lot, or at least tries to sleep a whole lot. And one of the things that I've learned since Beck was born three and a half months ago is that I think the ability to be quiet develops surely at the age of 10 or something. Because my kids do not have the capacity to be quiet. It's just impossible. Uh, they're quiet when they're walking. They're quiet when they're riding. I don't understand how so much noise could come when they're not doing anything. Okay? So, all the time, you know, Beck will start to sleep, and I'll be like, guys, guys, he's, he's asleep. He's asleep. Your mom's tired. Let's let Beck sleep, right, so that he won't have to eat for 25 minutes at least, okay? And then inevitably... Bonk, 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 bonk. My, my son decides that he's going to start banging on the piano like indiscriminately seven seconds later. I'm like, buddy, buddy, what did I just say? Please be quiet. I forgot. <laughs> you forgot not to be the loudest person on the planet when I said this seven seconds ago? You forget so often. <laughs> but then the irony is, my daughter will start like dancing in the hallway right outside of Beck's room, and then Cannon comes in like, and Charlotte, be quiet! Beck's trying to sleep. <laughs> Melissa and I come from opposite ends of the house, like in slow mo, like no, waving our arms, quiet. It's too late. He's up. There's a certain irony about yelling at somebody to be quiet, and you were louder in your yelling than the person making noise was in the first place. And that's kind of what Jesus is picturing for us in this passage, sort of pot calling the kettle black. You've got two people with wood in their eyes, okay? It amounts to telling somebody with a splinter in your eye, when you have a log in your eye, hey, I can help you. You've got something distracting your view. I know what's going on. And Jesus is saying, you actually both have a problem. You both have wood in your eye. Jesus is teaching what the rest of the scriptures teach, and that is there is a universal truth that all humans, past, present, future, all of us are sinful. 
We're born sinful. We act sinfully. We have a bent that is against God. We're naturally rebellious. And what this teaching throughout Scripture is that all of us have actually earned God's displeasure. All of us. All of humanity. We've actually earned His judgment. We've earned His wrath which of course is heavy news, and Jesus wants us to take it seriously. And notice what he says, why do you see wood in his or her eye, but not the wood in your own eye? Why, why is that? For a lot of us, when we see sin in our own lives, we're tempted to just say, well, no one's perfect, right? Everyone's got problems, nobody's perfect. And what we actually end up doing, what I end up doing, we, we dismiss what Jesus says we ought to take seriously in our own life. We dismiss sin in our life. Sometimes we don't even see what the biggest issues in our life are. But it's all too easy for us to see sin in somebody else's life, to even be offended by sin in somebody else's life. And Jesus is saying there's a tremendous irony to the reality that all of us are programmed, or we, we all have this sinful bent, right? We're programmed one way and then the fall happens. Now we have this sinful bent that we're actually more offended by the sin of others than we are with the sin that lives within our own hearts. It's out there. The things that make me angry, the things that make this world wrong, the things that are bothersome, are out there, they're not in here. And we know how to point them out. We know what the real issues are. Uh, think about the sins of those on the opposite end of the political spectrum from you. Now you've got somebody in mind, you know, that person. What are their sins that make you angry? Our country is obviously very polarized in this way. We're angry. Or think about your roommate who doesn't clean up after themselves. And it's wrong. It is morally wrong. How can they live with themselves and why do I have to live with them? Or think about your roommate who's passive aggressive about the fact that you don't clean up after yourself. They're wrong. They shouldn't be so passive aggressive. They should just tell me, you know, for the 27th time, right? <laughs> but whoever you are, you know. They're wrong. Hi there. Ah. You know they're wrong. Let's pick right back up where we were. When you get married, the sin that you see so clearly is not your own sin. It's the sin of your spouse. Right? It's just a rule. The people you live with, you see their sin easily. Maybe you've seen this with your parents, and you don't want to communicate like they do, right? You see that they see each other, their sin. Now start listening to Jesus now. When he says, pay attention to what's in your eyes, start, start listening, because the habits you develop with your roommates aren't going to go away when you get new roommates. You're going to pick them back up with your next roommates, and you're going to pick them back up with your next roommates. And you might say, I'm never going to live like this with my spouse. But the way you live with people doesn't change because the person you live with has changed. Last night was Halloween. We had an awesome party. 
Uh, I still have water in my ears, true story, from my epic apple bobbing, you know, wonder, the performance. Before that, I took, I took my kids trick-or-treating. They loved it. They're finally old enough to really get it and run and laugh. And The weather wasn't great, as you know. It was rainy, and um, Melissa had worked really hard on their costumes, lovingly, meticulously done their costumes, had borrowed... Um, some arrows for me to wear and she's worried about the rain she's worried about the costumes and the quiver and it's hard for me to really paint a picture but she basically tried to just start like controlling the way the weather would go the whole night would go I was like Melissa you've got to stop just calm down you've got to stop and I got I got annoyed I didn't yell not that I'm, a, I'm above that but I just got annoyed and it's like well look you've got to stay here with Beck I've got to take the kids trick-or-treating and I left to take them on the best trick-or-treating ever because I'm not going to be the one to suck the joy out of Halloween. That's the sort of righteous indignation I left with, okay? <laughs> so she stays, and then, you know, three, four minutes later, I get a text, and she just says, I love you, you know, exclamation points. I'm sorry, exclamation points. And I say, I love you too, smiley face. I forgive you, and she's like, thanks. And I'm like, kissy-winky emoji face, right? And in all honesty, in that moment, what I'm thinking is I'm so encouraged by our marriage. I'm so encouraged by us. We are doing great. Melissa's really learned to apologize quickly. And boy, have I learned to forgive quickly. Um, Isn't that great? And... um, in the midst of this, the most joyful trick-or-treating expedition you know, in the history of our block, I'm hammered with conviction. And I just think about this. Why do you see the speck that is in your wife's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Because I had been impatient. In all honesty, I had been impatient, indignant, righteous. And the fruit of the Spirit, Paul tells us in Galatians 5, is love, joy, peace, patience, right? This is what I'm thinking, etc., etc. And he says, these fruits of the Spirit are set over against the works of the flesh, which are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, right, in my heart, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and he kind of goes on. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, why do you not see the log in your own eye, Joe, and you see the speck in your wives? And the reason that I do this is the same reason that you do this. We have this sinful bent. Now, here's here's the thing. Melissa was wrong in trying to be so controlling. Because if you'd asked me in that moment, Joe, why are you being impatient with your wife? I would say, I'm not being impatient, she's being controlling. And now we've got this sort of false dichotomy, right? Either she's wrong or I'm wrong. Either she's being sinful or I'm being sinful. And so often what we do is we just want to say, I see sin there, I'm in the clear, right? It's that simple. There it is. And if it's there, it can't be here, not in this heart. We would never say it that way, but that's the way we naturally think. That's the bent that we have. 
And it's a dangerous false dichotomy. Truth is, she can be controlling and I can be impatient. And both things were true last night. So I've got this conviction and I think about it for a few seconds because I was like, no, I was probably okay. No, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. I'm sorry that I got impatient with you. And she says, I forgive you. And I say, thanks. Seeing the log in our own eyes requires that we learn how to investigate what is actually going on in our own hearts. Because the problem with us is we think we know what is there when we've actually put up blinders. We want to protect ourselves from feeling like the people that Jesus says that we really are. We've got a whole lot of room in our hearts for sin that we aren't actually conscious of. And I didn't see it at first. But here's the thing. I guarantee you Melissa did. And I guarantee you she felt it. And I guarantee you it didn't make anything better in that moment. And it's a log right in my eye. The reason Jesus tells us to look at logs in our own eyes is because he wants us to spend time examining our own hearts more time examining our own hearts than we spend examining the actions of others. And that's hard. Because if you trust your gut, if you trust your instinct, you actually are less likely to spend time examining yourself. Because your gut says, I'm good, the problem's out there. And Jesus is calling us to a whole new way of thinking. Maybe you are the problem. Maybe you have a log. Maybe there is sin in your heart and the crevices hidden that you aren't quite aware of. Maybe even if asked about in this moment, you would say, no, it's not there. But if you spend time actually thinking about it, you'll find by the help of the Holy Spirit, ah, yeah, I'm worse than I thought. When Jesus says, judge not, he doesn't mean stop discerning what is wrong. That's a lot of times what we think. Judge not, right? We're all broken, so don't worry about it. You worry about you, I'll worry about me. But in Matthew 18, which is the same book as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins against you, then go and tell them their fault. So discern whether or not you've been sinned against. And then even be kindly, gently confrontational about it. Obviously, you have to be discerning. You've got to judge what's happening. And the whole Sermon on the Mount is built on the idea that God will judge those who do not bow before His King. The whole Sermon on the Mount is built on this idea that there's a kingdom that is coming and Jesus is bringing people in. We have to be able to judge whether or not we're acting according to that kingdom or not. He's not telling us to check our discernment at the door. When Jesus says, judge not, what he means is never assume that you sit in the seat of the judge. Meaning never assume that you stand on a moral high ground that the person you're looking at simply doesn't stand on. That you have the right and the moral high ground to condemn. Mm. We all have sins in our lives that keep us from seeing clearly. That's Jesus' point. 
And what Jesus is saying is, you must assume sin in your life. And not just assuming, well, of course there's sin in my life. We're all sinners. Nobody's perfect generically. Not like that. But assuming Jesus means I need to dig deeper into my own heart. I need to evaluate what is the exact specific sin in my heart. What's getting in the way of me really loving others well? And I've learned that this is especially true when I'm frustrated with somebody else. When I'm frustrated with somebody else, naturally I'm less likely to look in my own heart but to say, I know what their problem is. They did this, they did this, and they did this. And I'm not wrong about those things. And that's why Jesus says in verse 5, You hypocrite, first take out the log from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What's amazing about this, or noteworthy about this, is most of the time when Jesus calls somebody a hypocrite, you know who he's talking to? Not his true followers, but the Pharisees. Those who sort of care about the law but don't love Jesus. Those who sort of make man-made religions. Those who think that they can be righteous in and of themselves. And so we read hypocrite and we think, oh good, bad guys, he's not talking about me. We have a lot more in common with the Pharisees than we think, side note. But here he's not talking about the Pharisees. He's talking about his followers. He's talking about those who are following him. He says, when you think you've got the moral high ground, when you think the problem's all out there, you're a hypocrite. You've forgotten who you really are. Broken and sinful. He's talking about us who see the sin in others, but don't naturally see it in ourselves. We're slower to see it in ourselves. So let's pause for a second. Some of us are thinking about, well, Joe, actually... I do see sin in my life. I'm wrestling with these same sins. You don't know. I'm I'm praying all the time, God save me from this sin. But I think his point here is not the sins that we naturally think of. Think about the sin in your life. Oh, I've got this sin. He's not talking about the lust in your life. He's not talking about the gossip in your life. He's not talking about whatever it is, the big thing that came up. He's talking about the thing that's more hidden to you. The thing that's not so obvious. The thing that you think isn't there. Maybe the thing you haven't identified yet. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say probably the people who are closest to you have some sense of what that sin might be. The people closest to us sometimes know us better than we know ourselves. They know the, the, the ways that we sort of the way we look when nobody's looking at us. We don't know what that looks like. When we look at ourselves, we're looking at eye contact. I'm looking at myself in the mirror. You guys know what I look like when I'm not looking at myself in the mirror. Some of you guys know that sometimes when I'll be like, oh, me, when I feel awkward. I was like, I don't say that. You do say that. You guys know parts of me better than I know myself, and you guys know each, each other better than you know yourself. You see what I'm saying? Have you given the people in your life that you're close to, have you given them the freedom to lovingly and tenderly call you out? You know you get really defensive whenever this happens. You know, you kind of get angry when this happens. Hey, you know, you're not reliable at all 
right? Have you given people in your life freedom to call you out? Because one day, your spouse and your children are going to know you better than yourself. And they're going to know your sin better than you know your own sin. And it's going to be a whole lot harder to just say, everybody's sinful. The sin that we have in our hearts, can, it doesn't go away. It continues to manifest itself. And left unchecked, if Jesus doesn't deal with it, it grows. The biggest problem in toxic marriages is that both people think the other person is the problem. You know what the problem in this marriage is? Him, her, that's the problem. And Jesus is saying, that mentality is never going to resolve itself. You've got to spend time dealing with how you have hurt others. Because obviously people hurt you. What Jesus is saying, obviously you hurt others just as well. Of course your future spouse is going to hurt you, but you're going to hurt them too. Spend time figuring out how you've hurt them. Even if you're unaware of it, deal with your plank before you deal with their splinter. And let others deal with you. Here's what Jesus is saying. It's life-giving. It's life-giving. And it's the way that Jesus intended community and friendships and marriages to be. Now, verse 6 tells us that following Jesus in this way doesn't always have a happy ending. Just a brief comment on this. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot, turn, and attack you. Sometimes when you offer the gospel to somebody in a tender rebuke, loving correction, there will always be, that will always be met with defensiveness. Maybe respond with, with gaslighting. They're just Nothing is cracking into this heart. Sometimes people will say over and over again, there's nothing wrong with me. I've not done anything wrong to you or anyone else. We're hardwired that way. And unless Jesus crashes in, that just stays that way. And this is one of the reasons why if you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus, one of the many reasons Jesus says, you should really only marry somebody else who's a follower of me. You should really only marry somebody else who is just as committed to the idea that I want to be shaped by the truth. I want to let him speak into my life and show me the hidden crevices of my heart that I might repent to him and you. But there's also a word of warning to us. We should listen patiently to godly, corrective voices in our lives. And it's humbling and sometimes it's painful. And the only thing that makes it possible is that Jesus knows the hidden crevices of your heart better than you do. And Jesus knows the hidden crevices of your heart better than your friends do, better than your future spouses will. He's not afraid of what he sees. He's not surprised by what he sees. In fact, those hidden crevices are the very reason that he came to die in the first place. The Father judged him as guilty because of people like you and I, and with hearts like you and I have. 
with hidden crevices like you and I have. And he judged Jesus as guilty. He poured his wrath out on him so that he would not have to pour his wrath out on us. He's given Jesus what we have earned so that we might not have that, instead have what Jesus has earned, eternal life. The more you become convinced that there are hidden crevices, sinful hidden crevices in your heart that you don't know, the more thankful you will become that Jesus died for you. When we consider that He has dealt with the hidden crevices of our heart, we'll love Him all the more. We love the one who came to die for us. We no longer want to live with those hidden crevices. We, never, we no longer want to live as though he didn't come to deal with them. And we're no more ashamed of them, fearful of shame, because we know that Jesus has dealt fully and finally with the penalty of those crevices. We can acknowledge them to ourselves. We can acknowledge them to our God. And with a close community, we can begin to acknowledge them with each other. And so we repent, not out of fear or shame, but out of love and gratitude. And the more we understand the sinful baggage that we bring into our relationships, the better we can love others and the better we can receive our Lord Jesus. So let's receive him now. Let's ask him for help. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that these words are your words. We thank you that you tell us that we have logs in our eyes, but we are so concerned with the splinters in others. Help us to take our sin more seriously than we take the sins of others. Help us to accept without qualification that we're broken, that we need a Savior, and not just in the past, but right now. We pray that you would bring healing in our lives, in our relationships because of it. So help us to follow you. Amen. Let's sing.